0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's Dialogue Novo. I'm Jake Rome. Please remember to like this show on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Wherever you get those podcasts, you can get us there too. And maybe even learn to love us. Nico and I had Radhika Sutherland on the show today. Radhika is a first-year law student at Loyola, and her and I actually had a chance meeting about two weeks ago at a community circle focused on intersectionality, and we had some disagreements, we'll get into that, but ultimately it was a very enriching experience for both of us, and this interview was similarly enriching. And I think you guys will enjoy it quite a bit. So, without any further ado, please give it up for the great and powerful Radhika Sutherland. All right, so, do you want to just jump in? You can start. All right, welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. And I'm Nico Ospina. And we're sitting here with Radhika. Hello. Thanks for joining us on the snowy afternoon.
1: Thank you for welcome. thinking I'm interesting enough to be on a podcast.
0: Well, we'll see. We'll see about that. Fair, <laughs> enough, fair <laughs> enough, So, actually, uh, I'll tell you a little bit of the backstory of this. Radhika and I first met at a intersectionality circle that the school hosted and she said some really interesting things. First and foremost, she said that she uh had an aversion to my political persuasion, which <laughs> I get more often than you would imagine. And then you went on and said some really interesting things about you having this kind of dueling identity that you're constantly being pulled in these two different directions because you are the daughter of immigrants mm-hmm. and you also feel very strong kinship to this country, obviously, in that you are reminded in a lot of ways of the fact that you are an immigrant or the daughter of immigrants at some points. Mm -hmm. Could you just refresh my memory and fill the listeners in on exactly what it was that you said?
1: Yeah. um, First, I'm going to start with the community circle itself. So that's something kind of new that's been going on at Loyola. And I actually attended a community circle training a few weeks ago. So that we can really incorporate it into Loyola's culture. So what the community circles are, are a safe space, essentially. And I know that term gets thrown around a lot. Sure. Yeah, Yeah. of course. Yeah. (laughs) Have your reactions, but Uh it is a safe space. Um, And I think our interaction is a really good example of what can result from that. Mm -hmm. So what the goal of the community circle is, is to bring people together from the Loyola community Mm -hmm. um, to talk about topics that are hot in like pop culture, where we're at right now, in the law school itself, um, or anything really. So what we were talking about was intersectionality.
0: Right, right.
1: And intersectionality is uh it's an up and coming term in the world of academia. Yes. <laughs> the very big and exciting world of academia. Mm-hmm. I went to grad school for clinical therapy. Right. And um in grad school is where that term was really used a lot and we really emphasized it because as a therapist, it's quintessential for us to recognize people's intersecting identities, meaning Everyone is multifaceted and how they present, how they feel, how they react is going to be dependent on not just the fact that they're a white man or a brown girl, but how all of their different uh, identities intersect and interact with one another. Mm -hmm. So there's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. I don't see color. Right. People who are trying to explain that they're not racist are trying to explain that they don't see color. And that come that I think they say that in a way to be non divisive, meaning everyone is the same to me, but when you say you don't see color, people of color feel that you're erasing their part of their identity. Mm-hmm. part of my identity, a big part of it is the fact that I'm brown, and that's because that's not something I can change uh-huh so when you are Recognizing someone's intersecting identities or recognizing each part of who they are, that is a way to reverse the erasure that society has tried to impose on a lot of people. Because, so again, I come from a psychology background, uh, and I'll just give an example. We did a study in one of my psych classes in undergrad, like 14 million years ago, yeah. that, <laughs> um, where it was... Basically, you were rating attractiveness. So they flashed a bunch of different faces in front of you, and you were rating how attractive they were. And that sounds like a very weird psychological study. But we were what we were trying to figure out is what is, at the most basic level, attractive to people. Huh. And the results of that study were that when they took people with unique features, they were late. Rated less attractive than when they took a whole bunch of faces, hundreds and hundreds of faces, and then blend them all together. That was the most attractive face to people. Interesting. So what that tells me is it's more palatable if someone is homogenous, if society is homogenous, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just hit the mic. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> um, I talk with my hands. That's <laughs> that's <laughs> big thing about me. Um, so I think when people try to say things like, I don't see color or intersecting identities or anything like that um, are almost divisive, I think that's wrong. It's actually just more comfortable for the person to see someone as not unique, but someone that I can put into a box that I already recognize. When you take intersecting identities, you're taking them out of a cookie cutter mold or a box that you already know exists, and they're in their own unique space. And that's hard for people to deal with.
0: Right. I guess my problem is is that it seems like intersectionality is a theory in absence of better evidence. Because really I think the core of what you're describing is individuality. And the individual is obviously the most intersectional person out there. The problem that I have with it is when you see, like they had in that booklet that they gave us at the community circle, mm-hmm. like these different axes with, like in white and, and minority, woman, man, those seem like really broad features that in no way are really reflective of who the individual is. Mm-hmm. So I, I know colorblind is thrown around a lot, but I think what the what saying I'm colorblind is is that I look past the outside features and I see the person as an individual. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's all, almost the best way to go. I mean, I feel like intersectionality is painting with a broad brush mm-hmm. that most people intuitively understand there's something below that. You know, there's something at the core of it, which is individuality.
2: I mean, just to add to what you're saying, Jake, I think for me personally, this is in law school is when I first came into contact with the term intersectionality. So it's still kind of new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but to add to what you were saying, and maybe you have some insight into this, is there any scientific data to back the claims of, you know, the theory of intersectionality? Because clearly it, it makes sense. Um, and it, it, it brings to a lot of people. Right. And I
0: I think I would even agree with most of the top line claims of it. Mm -hmm. I guess the problem that I have is, one, the way it's put into practice, where it does kind of lead to derogatory things being said about people who place higher on the intersectionality hierarchy. And it's also used, I, I think, you know, it's used to kind of categorize people in a way that feels regressive to me. So I want to turn back to the comments you actually made during the community circle. No, got away from that. Sorry. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. okay. That's okay. So why don't you refresh my memory and tell the listeners about what it was that we discussed?
1: Okay. So um, in this community circle, which if you ever come to one or have the opportunity to go to one, you should, because it's this very intimate space where people really are sharing things that they probably normally would never say to a group of strangers. I don't know what it is. There's like a magic about a community circle that makes you feel comfortable to say things. So you, I think, were early on in the circle. Yeah, yeah. When and when Mm -hmm. you identified yourself as a conservative. Mm -hmm. And just I don't know. I'm trying to figure out if this was the case before 2015 probably with me it was i've been a quote unquote bleeding heart liberal since i knew what a liberal was um nice people <laughs> <laughs> some of us can be <laughs> so when i when you just said it i'm conservative and especially honestly at loyola which seems like a very um like social justice-centric, which in my mind, I automatically associate I'm just learning of this now. (laughs) (laughs) So to hear someone just say, I'm a conservative in that setting, I was kind of shocked. So um, the way I described it was I had a visceral reaction to it. And by that, I mean, it was um, mental and physical. Mm -hmm. Like my face immediately got hot, immediately. And my um, heart started pumping, my hands started getting sweaty, and that's when I like really was like, I need to do some introspection about this. Like, why is it just that just him saying that I am a conservative male makes my face get hot? Like I felt personally attacked by that. Mm-hmm. And I'm I totally understand you in no way were attacking me. No. But <laughs> no, we're on the same page about that. But I think it's because. My whole life and my life experiences, and I'm sure I'll share some of those here, I did feel like I was being attacked by conservative men. Mm -hmm. And so it's gotten or it had gotten so bad to the point where you just identifying yourself as a conservative to a group in a safe space, that was enough for me to feel like it was a personal affront. And so by the time the talking piece got to me, which was maybe 10 people in between, Mm -hmm. I was calming down a little bit and that's when I felt like I'm going to be honest about what my reaction was because I think there's no point to the community circles if we're not getting one step closer to having these conversations and it ultimately led to this yeah
0: yeah I think and I think this is terrific let's 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 dig into that a little bit like what what introspection did you do and what did it reveal to you and Do you feel the same way sitting across the table from me now?
1: (laughs) So in that moment, like I said, it was like 8 to 10 people in between. So introspection level was fairly low. It was mostly like deep breathing, calm down. This is irrational for you to be feeling this way. That's what I kept telling myself, that I was being irrational for having such a strong reaction. And then I was like, no, you've had experiences that contribute to that reaction. But the benefit of being a therapist or person who's been in the world of psychology is you do get good at like taking a step back and reassessing. So I was able to do that in that moment. What was the question?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I guess it was more of a hope that you don't feel the same way now.
1: Ah, I see. I see. Okay. And so it was after the fact. And I, I was really appreciative that you guys approached me with this. And obviously I have been thinking about it. It's been about Eight eight days, I think, since the circle. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's right. That's right.
1: And I have thought about it a lot, and I talked to my husband about it. And my husband, so um, just so you guys know, I am Indian American, and my husband is a white American. Mm -hmm. And we're both from Kentucky. We're both born and bred in Kentucky, like most thoroughbreds are, (laughs) but... (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're getting Um, loose already. This is great. (laughs) I kind of live in the loose zone, but we, so, I mean, that's an example of intersection right there. So at the surface, both of us are from Kentucky, but really we could not be more different in a lot of ways. And so a big issue with him at the beginning of our relationship, like we met on Tinder, which I'm not ashamed to share. We're no married now, so whatever. This is another safe space. <laughs> um, so when, you know, we matched on Tinder, I, of course, had dealt with white guys before because I was born in Owensboro, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. But Kyle had never dated a person of color or had much... Like, he has... He has friends from all over, but it's different being in an intimate relationship Mm -hmm. with someone of a different culture than you are.
0: I can imagine, yeah.
1: So a big struggle at the beginning of our relationship was the concept of white privilege and conservatism and all those types of things because he had his life experiences and the way he grew up and I'm me. So um, we used to clash about it a lot, a lot. and. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, he's done his due diligence. He's read all the articles or pretended to read all the articles that I've sent him about it. And (laughs) we've had, like, many, many, many long conversations about it. And it's amazing how much he's learned and grown. I'm not going to say he's changed, but he's grown a lot. So when I was talking to him about you, Uh he was like really interested in that because he knows where he started and where he is now. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, you know, you're not going to be able to change that guy. Like you changed me. And I'm (laughs) like, I'm not trying to change him. Actually, I'm really looking forward to it because while I hope that like you grow and change through every conversation, I'm looking to do the same thing because of the very visceral reaction I Mm -hmm. mentioned. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. So I think you were alluding that your husband was more conservative before you met him or
1: yeah he's not gonna like that when he hears me say this I'm I just think he didn't really think about it uh-huh. okay. which is part of white male privilege not having to think about it Um, or that's my theory at least part of the privilege I was talking about with him is that he didn't really think about any of those things until I posed the question to him whereas the questions were coming from my real life experience mm-hmm.
0: so it kind of I'm kind of at a loss of where to go right now because you just said a lot of things and I want to hear about those <laughs> yeah. experiences, but Sorry. I also don't want to lose sight of the other things you said at the community circle. I know. So with the understanding that we will come back to your, the second half of what you said at mm-hmm. the community circle, let's go down this a little bit. So, I mean, what kind of issues arose between the two of you at the beginning or nascent stages of your relationship?
1: One big one, and that's, this is an issue that I have with a lot of people, um, is acknowledging the concept of white privilege in general. Mm -hmm. I don't know where you stand on the issue, but it has been an uphill battle with me and my white male friends in particular. Mm -hmm. I've noticed my female friends are much more willing to admit about white male privilege, obviously, because male is a part of that, too. Is this
2: something that was introduced to you early on in your life? So you were... Conscious and aware that white privilege existed or is this something that came later on in life? The term... The term itself, yeah.
1: That was grad school. Okay. Yeah. It's amazing what... But did
2: it click as soon as you ran like, oh, wow, this is... Okay, now it makes sense. Everything I've been living and experiencing. Yeah.
1: I mean, what we would consider by... When I say we, I mean women of color. Okay. What would consider like a very normal part of our existence... Mm -hmm. They, in grad, when I started grad school, pretty much like the first week, they went ahead and gave a name to this feeling and this phenomenon that I had experienced my whole life. Mm -hmm. But I never knew what to call it or what I was experiencing. But it's white male privilege. That's exactly what it is.
0: I feel like a lot of Mm -hmm. the past 10 to 15 years have been just (coughs) ascribing definitional names to things that people have observed for a long time.
1: Like intersectionality. Right, right.
2: But it's because I also come from. I'm an immigrant. I'm also not from this country, but I am white and I mm-hmm. am a male. Mm-hmm. So especially those two terms, you know, white privilege and male privilege. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something I, I, I honestly don't really understand. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't understand the, the objective and the purpose other than, because I think I asked someone this once. I'm like, so, so let's, I, I don't know the theory behind it, but let's just assume for argument's sake that it's all true. And I do have white privilege and I do have male privilege. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do with that information? What, mm-hmm. what is expected of me? What's my responsibility? What are my duties?
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. I think there was a question mark in there somewhere. Um, I guess, how do you conceptualize it? And what's the proper way to treat yourself with the acknowledgement that you have some sorts of privileges?
1: Yeah. I mean, the very first step is being able to acknowledge that it exists. And that is the hardest part for people. And for my husband, that was the hardest part, admitting that it existed. Mm-hmm. I think that is more than half the battle because once people recognize that it exists, and, and I'm not saying that specifically to you mm-hmm. because your identity as an immigrant intersects white male privilege hard. Mm-hmm. So bringing it back to intersecting identities. Right. But,
2: but I mean, I know this is a very complex subject, yeah. but if you can just give us an uh, you know overview of what this sort of privilege means and what it entails.
1: Okay. Yeah, so... White male privilege is it's a complicated question. it is i I don't know if I can put a definition to what the term is, but I can give you lots of examples of okay, how it comes that's great. up., yeah. just like I said with Kyle, not having to think about the state of politics because it doesn't affect me. That's going on in washington d c whereas a lot of what was happening in politics affects the minority communities in particular very strongly. Mm-hmm. So something like the Affordable Care Act. Kyle didn't care. His mom had insurance through the hospital that she worked at, so it didn't affect him whether that happened or not. It was just something going on in Washington, D.C. Whereas with my family, I mean, that's a different story. We're small business owners also, so and in the medical field. So yeah. obviously yeah. whatever's going on in the insurance field affects us and if not necessarily for my community, a lot of minority families, the Affordable Care Act is everything, and not even um, minority race-wise, minority socioeconomic status-wise also. Just anybody who is not in the majority, which is middle class, was very affected by something like the Affordable Care Act. So um, not the privilege of not having to worry about what's going on in the, in the government. Another really good example is What's going on with the visas? They're, they're making all kinds of changes to what's going on with student visas and visitor visas. And for someone like my husband, who, you know, he's from Kentucky. His whole family lives in Kentucky or Ohio. Why would that matter to him? But a lot of my family is from India. And so they rely on those visas to come here and study or visit family that lives here. So that was directly affecting us. So um, that's one arena mm. that it is super prevalent is that that white male privilege or the that's just maybe the white part of that's it. that's what i was gonna yeah. say yeah
0: <laughs> but
1: the male privilege so um women's health care it's like constantly up for debate amongst all these old white guys in washington dc and i it will never cease to amaze me that they have so much of an influence over my mm-hmm. body but um, that's like but male does, privilege. But does the mere
2: fact that they're male disqualifies them for having the discussion? Yes. Okay.
1: That's all it does. <laughs> it disqualifies them. Okay. So so
2: race and gender and I guess your economic status, according to this, would disqualify you from many discussions?
1: Mm-mm, that's, I think that's or not... Or that
2: like an overstatement? Yeah,
1: that's okay. quite an overstatement. Okay. I think particularly, I don't know that I would be comfortable saying that about anything else other than men discussing women's health issues. That, I think, is a complete disqualification. But I don't know that I'd be comfortable to say that about other topics. I mean, I'm sure we could come up with some, but that one I'm very confident about.
0: (laughs) I did want to ask about, so how does your experiences with your husband and the idea of white privilege, how does that tie into the broader intersectional model? Like, Mm -hmm. is... Should we be working towards getting everyone to think in this manner? And is that part of the mission statement um, behind intersectionality and things like the community circle?
1: Yeah. First, I would love for people who would be designated with the white male privilege, people who um, either recognize it in themselves or whose society says they have it. I, I think it'd be great if those people would think about intersectionality within themselves because i I have found and I don't know if this is true or not, you guys correct me, I found that a lot of the guys I know um, don't really take the time to think about things like that, intersecting ide- identities within themselves, even you know i don't i mean that's I, well, I, well oh, to be ahead. honest
2: with you I just I don't know many people, male or female, that mm-hmm. do that maybe they do and they don't share it It's just um I think, like you you alluded to, Jake, at the beginning, it's something that's discussed uh, in academic circles, but on a uh, day-by-day basis. I'm not, maybe because of my background, but I'm not Mm -hmm. exposed to this.
0: Yeah, I mean, if we want to use the fact that you don't think about things like that as a symptom or evidence that white male privilege is a real thing, well, then I'd have to concede that it's a real thing Mm because I don't think about it. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, I'm mostly concerned with very practical things, and I'm also just not an especially imaginative person, mm-hmm. so I don't really spend a lot of time constructing narratives or uh, about myself or the world around me. I, it's, it's not something I do, but to the extent that it does exist, I would concede that I have it. Mm-hmm. I mean, just because I am a white male, heterosexual from a pretty privileged background, my parents I mean, I'm ticking off all the boxes, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so, how, how I want to get, if it's, it's okay, I want to get a little bit personal. Like, how did convincing your husband and, and I guess exposing him to these ideas, how did it better your relationship? What did it do for you? I know that you mentioned that he had never dated a woman of color, mm-hmm. a brown girl, as you described yes. yourself. How did that help break down walls?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think his ability to recognize those things is kind of the foundation of our relationship because I'm not going to get mushy. If you have, if you ask me, like, what I love about my husband, obviously it's a lot of things, but I think number one most is that when those issues came up in our relationship super early, way earlier than any couple should deal with those kind of things, um, he obviously reacted strongly at the beginning because he was 23. Yeah. <laughs> and we're 30 now, so we've been been through this for a while. But mm-hmm. he was 23, had never thought about it, didn't want to believe it existed. He ta- thought about it and read some of the articles I sent him. And then we had these great conversations where he was like, oh, my God, I just never looked at this. And I would send him articles about – you know, how girls in the world don't get educated about menstruation issues in the world, about how, like, having a period is so normal in America and, like, it's just part of society, but in how African and Asian countries, women's education is literally over as soon as they start their periods. Things like that that, I I mean, I don't blame him for not thinking about it. I don't blame you guys for not thinking about it. Why would you? But Uh um, the fact that he was willing to dig so deep really f- formed a very strong foundation for our relationship because it showed me what he was willing to, to give me in our relationship
0: yeah I mean I, I I can compare that experience to relationships I have in my own life, mm-hmm. you know not the least of which is Kate sitting over there I mean we sat down for two and a half maybe three hours and debated intersectionality yeah and uh, i'm always I always read whatever she sends me yeah you know? mm-hmm. and I give her the time of day even if I throw some eye rolls in there sometimes. But I, I I think that that's really important. And I think that that's a great tool or device to get people to listen to each other a little bit more is maybe acknowledging that there are things that you don't know, which I think as people who are in higher education and fancy ourselves intellectuals, right. I mean, that's one of the biggest skills we have is admitting what we don't know.
1: Yeah. Um, you had actually asked me earlier um, how I was going to approach this conversation, and it's almost the same thing about Kyle and I. When you expressed an interest in talking to me despite whatever differences, I melted. I was like, okay, he's wanting to talk about it. So it's not like an animosity towards conservative males. I think it's more this fear, inherent fear, that he's not gonna wanna hear anything I have to say or he's gonna dismiss all of my experiences just based on. His identifier in that moment. And when you like right away, like totally disputed my false belief in that way, I was all in. So I think that a lot more of that needs to happen in our society.
0: Yeah, I think this transitions well into is, could you maybe offer up some examples of how first and foremost, maybe what the antecedents of your immediate like reaction to me pronouncing myself a conservative where those came from. And then maybe some examples of how this intersectionality theory has played out in, in real life affecting you. You know, Mm -hmm. what are are the examples of, you know, ways in which white male privilege has affected you or being a minority and a a woman, so on and so on.
1: Yeah. So I was born in Owensboro, Kentucky, which is a rural community. Um, it's, maybe the third or fourth largest city in Kentucky, but that's not saying much. And it used to be, you know, when you go to class and they ask you the dreaded fun fact, my fun fact always used to be that Johnny Depp was also born and raised in Owensboro, Kentucky, but mm. I don't, I'm afraid that's not as cool as he used to be. <laughs> um, yeah. So I've been forced to come up with some really crappy fun facts after that, but um, that's Owensboro. And it's, just a typical it's not a suburb of anything but it's a typical suburban town you know like right. the outskirts of Owensboro are all farms but in and of itself Owensboro thinks it's pretty hot stuff you know mm-hmm. <laughs> we're the third we are the third largest city in Kentucky you know yeah. um so that was a big formative part of my life experience because when you're born someplace like that you can predict the demographics you know like yeah there are four high schools in our town, and I went to Davis County High School, which was like the preppy high school because of.
0: Ooh, la, la. I <laughs> know. Gosh. Gosh. We're sitting at a table with a Davis High School graduate, guys. D- Davis <laughs> County. Don't get it twisted. Okay. Um,
1: it's ridiculous. But that was only because of the neighborhood that it was in, it was in an area that was around all these, like, I guess, doctor neighborhoods. Owensboro is really known for its medical community. So Uh um, there's lots of doctors. So it was really easy to put, like, there was Apollo High School, which was the, the rural ag high school, and Davis County was the preppy one. And Owensboro High School was, out of all our high schools, The one that had a large minority population, but that was because it was downtown, like by the river. Mm -hmm. So it's really, I mean, we all had to read Color of Law. I don't know if you guys had to as upperclassmen.
0: Well, I did because we had Richard Rothstein on the uh, show. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, it wasn't a required reading. Yeah. Right.
1: But I mean, I think it should be. I think everyone in the world should be. I would agree with that, yeah. But Color of Law talks a lot about how cities you know, mandated segregation. And you, that is very apparent in Owensboro, even though mm-hmm. that wasn't one of the cities mentioned in the book. But that, in my high school, I was one of maybe 10 Indian kids. And mm-hmm. Indians was the biggest minority group because, like I said, we were in the doctor area of the okay. the town. So that's like one stereotype that holds true <laughs> <laughs> in this case. And um, we had maybe like... One or two black kids and one or two Asian kids who were yeah. adopted. Yeah. So it was a, And there were 2,000 people in my high school. So think about that. Like I went to high school with 1,985 white people. <laughs> yep.
2: Did you find yourself subconsciously gravitating towards the Indian, small Indian community? No, Did you we, feel that your parents pushed you towards that? We
1: all stayed away from each other. Really? Really? And now yeah. we, we talk about it now. But we, I think we all were taught, self-hate is going to sound like a really dramatic term.
0: Whatever works.
1: But we, I mean, I think when you grow up in an environment like that and you're different and people are like constantly making uh, comments, like in elementary school, I will never forget one time a guy came up to me and we were probably in fourth grade, nine years old. And he was like, oh, I saw something about India on TV last night. Do you guys drink cow's pee? like just constantly stuff like that and it makes you be like ew no and then and then you like are almost taught to hate your culture because of that right because the the National Geographic version or the Discovery Channel version of Indian people was I guess people drinking cow pee I don't know if that's true or not I've I've never heard heard of of such a thing or like some kind of cobra cult that was in the forest. And like now I've gotten really quippy. I'm like, okay, well, what about the blue people in the Appalachian Mountains? You know, like now I have all kinds of comebacks. But when you're nine years old and hearing stuff Mm -hmm. like that about your culture, it's really confusing and it makes you want to distance yourself from that identity. Mm -hmm. So I think like with the other Indian kids, we all, not that we hated each other, I mean, hate has no place in the conversation. Not that we, like, didn't like each other because we all grew up together. Our parents... Obviously, um, when my father came from India, he came to Chicago. He earned some money in Chicago and then moved down to Kentucky and bought a small business. Mm -hmm. So when he did that, there were only, like, 10 Indian families Mm -hmm. or 10 Indian couples. Like, no one even had kids yet. So, um, like, a very small community and they... You know, we're learning the language, learning the customs, learning the culture. And so they relied heavily on one another. Yeah. And I think they they expected their children to do the same thing, but we almost went in the opposite direction. We were like kind of embarrassed of our parents, it's embarrassed of our culture, embarrassed the way our food smelled, embarrassed of like constantly being anytime. I love this meme um, where it says, <laughs> when someone mentions... Diversity and inclusion in a meeting, and you are the diversity and inclusion. Everyone looks at you. Like anytime anything like that comes up in school, everyone's gonna look at you. Right. Whether right. if it's anywhere in the Eastern Hemisphere, mm-hmm. I am automatically the authority of that. So when you're young, you really don't want anything to do with it. So like we kind of all operated in our own circles. I'm just really grateful. My parents did a really good job of imbuing me with a love of our culture, also. So I I think I'm maybe an, an exception that I speak the language fluently, I can read and write Hindi, and most, um, they're called ABCDs, American Born Confused Desis. Um, <laughs> most ABCDs don't you know, speak uh-huh. Hindi, read and write it. So um, I grew up watching Bollywood. I love Indian dancing. The food I struggled with growing up, I'm much better about it now. But like, I love the food. I, I think know, it's terrific. Well, now it's trendy, yeah, know, so right? now yeah, I'm allowed yeah, to yeah, like yeah, it because yeah. Indian food is cool and trendy. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but growing up, if I ever like, I one time, elementary school was kind of dramatic. <laughs> one time when I was in elementary school, I remember um, bringing a lunch that my mom packed for me, and like. No one wanted to sit at the table because it smelled so strongly. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and now, if I brought Indian food, like everyone would want some. Right,
0: yeah. All the people so, with skinny jeans. Yeah. Gonna...
1: <laughs> Do you have skinny jeans? Again? Hell no. no, no. Oh, Jake.
2: Yeah, that's his trademark. Do you think
0: I have the body for skinny jeans? Look at me. Um,
2: <laughs> but that's that's interesting. That it going back to when you said that you know that it almost brought some self hate mm-hmm. because of the reaction from the community. Mm-hmm. I myself was also an immigrant growing up in this country, mm-hmm. uh, but my experience was completely different. I think mainly because hearing you speak from your experience is I had the complete opposite experience where I was not seen as different, although I was different. Mm-hmm. I was white and I'm a male. Mm-hmm. And then just people assumed that I was just, you know, quote unquote, one of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting to hear that because from my point of view, it almost... Brought uh, an external dis- hatred, is a strong word, but yeah. a dislike of, of American culture because I, I saw them as they don't get me, right? And then they would also That's do the whole, you know, I'm from Colombia, so they would do the whole, you know, cocaine, Pablo Escobar oh. thing. Sure, sure. Anyways, All the greatest uh, hits. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and just to be clear, we're now into the territory of the second half of what you said at the intersectionality circle, which was this dueling identity mm. thing and, and how. How that's presented a huge life challenge for you, mm-hmm. and I kind of want to put this question to both of you guys, just based off mm-hmm. what you just said and the, what you've alluded to. One of my favorite shows of all time is this, is The Sopranos, mm-hmm. and there's this really interesting thing at the heart of The Sopranos where they're always trying to like reach back towards their Sicilian culture, but they're very aware of that they're living in New Jersey and that people don't act the way that they act, and like that tension there. The theme is that. There is something that there's something really precious or like sacred that's lost when you assimilate. And I guess how how do you feel about that, Nico? And then um, how do you feel about coming to embrace your culture later in life? Mm
1: -hmm. We'll start with you. Oh, I was gonna say start with Nico because he's a first generation. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I am a first generation, uh, and yes, I was brought up, I think unconsciously that. Uh, Colombians are superior, you know. Latin Americans, you know, we have a better culture. We have a better family unity, and blah blah blah. And how you have to hold on to these values dearly, or else you lose them, and you'll just become, uh, you know, the fat American who works from <laughs> nine to five type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Don't lose sight yeah. of what's important in life. Um, and I remember as a teenage boy, I was very nationalistic and patriotic and i would wear you know the little wristbands with the colombian flag and i i wanted to visibly show my support for the colombian culture
1: was this in america or this
2: was in america and also because i grew up in south florida uh where there's like a big latin presence yeah there's a lot of colombians venezuelans cubans naturally we gravitate to each other mm-hmm. and and you know there's the latin niche that has the upper hand on on the dull American, you know, that's kind of like mm. the vibe. Nobody's really thinking like that, but, but it's, it's this vibe of superiority. And somehow along the way, that became very silly. Sure. Uh, and I never really understood as, as a grown-up how assimilating to another culture would distance you from where you grew up or the values that were given to you because um I've had the fortune of to travel a lot meet a lot of people and we have more in common as a species than mm-hmm. than you know we think uh and being a good you can be a good person as you know with american values or with colombian values and usually this petty resistance to anything that's different i think is what leads to a lot of poor decisions yeah so you can you can like colombian food and music and you can also like american and food and music it's okay you don't have to pick one you know mm-hmm. but it's almost like you you see a lot I, this is especially true in the latin culture you see there's this you know urge to just l- criticize and ridicule you know american culture and and i'm always astounded what are you talking about the, mm-hmm. the mere fact that you're wearing jeans that's already a simulation of american culture mm-hmm. I know you don't see it that way but you know we're going to the theater to watch an american movie that's american culture you know mm-hmm. So anyways, I, I it wasn't a, a big problem for me, but I do remember, uh, not in a harsh way, but I do, I, I remember it being ingrained in me to stand up for, you know, what your country has given you. Uh-huh. It makes no sense to me now.
1: I wonder if that stems from the fact that you are a first generation. Probably. My experience was so different. <laughs> it was very interesting. I... Was born in Owensboro. So, not only was I born in America, but I was born in America in a place where, like, I did not have a group to assimilate to. (laughs) Right. You know, assimilation for me meant... It meant the way I talk and the way I dress. But it could never mean the way I think because I had my parents (laughs) so strongly um, in the background. So... Honestly, my biggest like adverse experiences growing up were not so much about race, but more about religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in the Bible Belt, and I think I was five years old. I mentioned this in the circle. I was in kindergarten the first time um, an older white lady told me that I was going to go to hell and that everyone in my family was going <laughs> to burn in hell, essentially. And I had no idea what hell was. Like I came home bawling that day because I was like crying, mommy, I don't want you to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. Like when we talk about it now, she's like, you just kept saying the word hell. and I was like, (laughs) what is going on? And my mom said something to me when I was five years old that I will never forget for the rest of my life, probably because she said it a few more times. And again, please, no one take this the wrong way. But she said, white people are crazy, don't listen to anything they say, you'll be fine. (laughs) So, I mean, that is kind of what my mom had to tell me in that moment, because I was terrified that I was damned to eternal hellfire and brimstone, because this lady told me that when I was in kindergarten. Um, And then religion was like constantly the battle. I had a friend who sent me a Bible every single year for 13 years?
0: Good friend. Kindergarten
1: yeah. through senior year of high school. Oh my and God. every single Bible in the cover, the inscription says, I love you so much. I want to spend the rest of eternity in heaven with you. I really don't want you to go to hell. Please read this and accept Jesus into your heart. And my parents like have a big aversion to throwing out any religious texts. So we still have all those Bibles oh, in our basement, uh, among a lot of other religious texts that kindly neighbors gave to us throughout our years. But like you would think hearing these stories, I would hate Americans or Christians. Or maybe you wouldn't think that. I hope no one thinks that. But like that was never my situation because even though mom said that to me really what they were teaching me and what hinduism teaches is like universal love and acceptance so my mom is a devout hindu and she taught me that like god exists everywhere so you can go to a mosque and worship god doesn't matter it's the same god that we talk about at home you can go to a church with your friends that is totally fine. Pray to whatever you want. It was like very much about universal acceptance. And then at the other end of the spectrum, I was hearing that you are literally going to burn because you don't believe what I believe. Mm-hmm. So I was getting really conflicting messages. But the way that I was able to like survive and escape with my sanity was because the te- the fundamental teaching in my home was one of love and acceptance. Uh-huh. And then also that background message of white people are crazy and they're going to say crazy stuff to you and you just have to ignore it. And I think that that was like a major defense mechanism. And I think I'm fortunate that I turned out to be his, I mean, people who know me who are going to listen to this are going to be like, what are you talking about? But like as stable as I did because <laughs> there's like yeah. so much conflicting messaging coming at you. But the fact that I loved myself, so the fact that some person was telling me they didn't want me to burn in hell, I was like, you know, I'm not going to because I'm a good person. (laughs) So hopefully you can accept that, and if not, we'll all be okay. I I
2: can see you pulling that one on your husband quite a few times. (laughs) Yeah. You're crazy. (laughs) I don't need to listen My to My mom you.
1: told me that I don't have to listen to anything you say. <laughs>
2: right. No,
1: but I mean, really, it did. Like a- after September 11th, I was in seventh grade when September 11th happened. So mm-hmm. um, I have like very vivid memories of what it. What grade were you in? I'm sorry. Seventh. Seventh? Okay. Mm-hmm. I was in middle school. Okay. And um, I, n- n- no one knew what they were talking about. We were seventh graders. Uh-huh. Like no middle schooler knows what they were talking about. But there was a lot of weird discussion about terrorism and people of color and like I remember there was a rumor going around school that anyone who was from certain areas would be deported and I not that those rumors were worth thinking about but I was also like I did think about them in the sense that I was like, okay, if they were born in America, but their family is Saudi Arabian, does that mean they have to go back? And, like, these are thoughts that most seventh graders should not be worried about. But I was thinking about it because of what was being thrown around so casually in our school at that time. So that was, like, another big time. And then uh, my father owned a um, Indian restaurant, two Indian restaurants. Mm -hmm. He opened one, both of them in Indiana. Uh
0: Uh-huh
1: and one of them he the second restaurant he opened was in Greenwood Indiana which i think is the rumored birthplace of the kkk if i'm not mistaken
0: don't, don't this know. is not like some kind of white guy inside. <laughs> I know. I'm looking at you like you're the authority on the KKK. I don't have postcards yeah. from them or anything. <laughs>
1: no. Um, well, I, well, I I don't know. I feel like I've heard that a few different places are the birthplace of the KKK. I don't know if anyone's I don't know. Racists wonder- are <laughs> everywhere. Let's, let's, let's but Greenwood, Indiana, it's like a south suburb of Indianapolis. Uh-huh. And my dad's grand opening for his restaurant was on September 10th, 2001. Oh, that's too bad. And then September really 11th happened the next yeah. day. And there were Molotov cocktails and rocks and all kinds of <clears> stuff. <throat> so, yeah. it, I mean, no matter how much you try to assimilate and survive, it's thrown in your face quite a bit. Because
2: I, I also remember 9-11. I was young. But I guess this is my white privilege, uh, you know, hitting back home. But I, I knew I was an immigrant, but it, it's strange. It's almost like subconscious. I'm like, well, I don't look like the people they want to hate. hmm so I got nothing to worry about, yeah. and it's true. I didn't feel any backlash at all. You know, it's interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think everybody has a pretty crystallized memory of nine yeah. eleven, but, but I, I just, it did I, really did not shake can, me.
2: Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I, I want to go back to you know religion as a key role mm-hmm. growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it almost seems like your parents' concern was that you believed in something. I don't like they didn't really. Worry too much about where you went to believe, but that you had a belief in this universal God. Do you? Th- well, I don't. I don't know where you stand today, but mm-hmm. would have would have they been accepting equally if you just didn't believe?
1: Yeah, that actually is closer to what the reality was. My parents, I, I think I made it sound that way. They didn't care about imposing like God on me per se. Mm-hmm. I think that was just more of the Hindu teaching and what they wanted me to get out of what they were saying more than anything is that everything is okay whether you believe you don't believe you're jewish hindu muslim christian catholic whatever it is it's okay right you love yourself and love others and i was not a big i'm i'm still not a religious person i would never say i was religious um i'm more spiritual and i know a lot of people say that but spirituality is like a fundamental aspect of um, Indian culture. Like, uh, you know, how some some cultures are defined by their religion. And Mm -hmm. I'd say India and Hinduism is like that. There are a lot of aspects of our culture that that stem directly from the religion. So I feel like a connection to Hinduism because I'm Indian, but not because I'm religious. And, like, my feelings about religion as a whole probably – do stem from being told I was going to go to hell when I was five or I had like a really weird vacation Bible school experience when I was in third grade. I was eight years old and um, I loved Vacation Bible School. I wanted to do it because all my friends were doing it and we did arts and crafts. Like I didn't even realize what VBS meant. We were just doing like making pillowcases that said VBS and stuff like that. For me, it was just like craft, like a week of crafts. Mm-hmm. And I did it for a few years. And then in eight, when I was eight years old, when I was in third grade, that was the last time I went, ever went to Vacation Bible School because I think that was the first time I was aware of what... They were asking me. So the very last day, I don't know if you guys ever did vacation Bible school or anything like that.
2: Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, well, I had Bible retreats. Yeah. So
1: I don't know if they would be similar to this, but it basically, it's like a bunch of kids of all different grades get together and you just rotate um, classrooms. Some some of them you're singing, some of them you're painting. Yeah, very similar. Um, some With a religious
2: undertone. That, you know, for adults, it's very important. For kids, it it can just pass right through you because you're just having
1: fun. Like, I'm telling you, I did three years of vacation Bible school before the incident, and I had no idea that it was (laughs) just a thing. I I didn't understand that aspect of it. But my third grade year, the very last day of vacation Bible school, we're in, like, this big church, big auditorium, like, big stage, lots of musicians and all this stuff is happening. And the man on the stage has a mic and he asks, um, how many of you are not Christian? And I like proudly throw my hand up. I'm like, I'm not Christian. Big mistake. Like, big big super mistake. Super proud Unlike of that God. fact. <laughs> like I had no idea what was about to happen. And so then they're like, okay, yes. And there were like maybe a handful of other kids we were kids and our parents right, were right. not there like yeah. this was something my parents trusted the um chaperones entrusted me to go there um they had no idea that was gonna happen so there's like maybe seven or eight of us on the stage and we're all in a line and he's like the man with the mic is going down the line and putting his hand on everyone's head and like asking do you accept christ into your heart are you ready to be baptized and i freaked out like your eyes just got really big yeah i was 8 years old <laughs> so inappropriate can you imagine <laughs> I, and there was like hundreds and hundreds of people the band is playing really loud in the background
2: wait there's a band
1: yeah, there's always a band in those big churches. <laughs> oh my God, there's a <laughs> really, there's a really good
2: documentary about this. I think it's called Jesus Camp. I I, I have to you know go back and check, but uh-huh. it's really yeah, Jesus really Camp
1: great. is great. But that's an extreme. This is like a, your run of the mill, average Bible school in like a normal town. Like there was nothing, there was nothing extreme about it or it wasn't supposed to be. And here I am, I'm an eight year old little girl. I'm, I get very dark in the summertime. So I'm like, mom said, I like get purple skin. I get so dark. So I'm like standing here with my little mushroom haircut on the stage. (laughs) (laughs) Wearing my Jesus T-shirt. <laughs> oh my! This is guerrilla
0: warfare right now. Oh my god!
1: And um, so he's like going down the line, and I panic. I'm like, I do not want to accept Christ into my heart right at this moment in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. Right, right. I don't even know what that means. I thought. I thought everyone was already in my heart. Like, I had no idea what was going on. So I had run off the stage in the middle of this thing. And that, it was like, it was a very traumatic experience. So that was, yeah, yet right, again, right, another, right. like, religious trauma in my sure. life. So, like, I've always, I, I think religion can be a beautiful thing. I'm, like, right, for some right. reason, I'm really moved by other people's faith. When I see someone else that has a deep faith and it's it's translating positively, that's the big key difference. When it's when other people's faith translates to better the world, right. I think it can be really moving. Yeah. But most of my experiences growing up were not that way. They were like, so I would do that in America and then I would go to India with my family and they would take me to these temples where like we had to stand in line forever because there's like 50 billion people in India and we'd have to um, like take our shoes off and the temples are so beautiful and elaborate, but there's all these poor people begging for money outside of it. So I was like, it's not that I was so tied to Hinduism that I couldn't accept Christianity. It was nothing like that. It was just religion as a whole was a really murky like dirty not dirty is too strong of a word but like i just shady almost like Like i didn't yeah muddy muddy is a great word like i didn't want to go there in any sense of the word
0: right right i mean i'm I'm always skeptical of like these systems of belief where if you want to buy one piece of it it kind of is a package deal like it's like you're gonna sign on to all of this but i i actually really agree with you that religion is clearly a force for good in some instances Mm -hmm. because it changes people's lives so dramatically absolutely. and i think you know putting the locus of control outside of yourself in some ways and and acknowledging that there's maybe something independent of your own whims that you should be believing in is is really important but Mm -hmm. i'm not i just never it never worked for me you know i especially the institution portion of it
2: right well i think i've already voiced my opinion on that subject yeah
0: Yeah, he's a (gasps) virulent
2: atheist Uh (laughs) I don't like the word atheist, but I'm not, a, I'm not very religious as well. But yeah. something, so I, I want to ask you like a deep question here. Mm-hmm. So something that people always bring up whenever I tell them I'm not a very religious person, it, person is that they're uh, intrigued and concerned of where it is that I am getting my values. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do I distinguish good from bad mm-hmm. if I don't have a manual, right? And I think this is why religious people sometimes go to the extent of, you know, telling a little girl that you're going to go to hell mm-hmm. because yeah. they're like, how... So so a lot of parents also would worry about their kids. How are you going to teach your kids the difference between good and bad? Right. So have you thought about this at all at any time? Or
1: Yeah, I, I think about it a lot. I have. I've been forced to think about it since childhood. Mm-hmm. And it was a question I never understood because, especially in the context of Christianity, because I was told or I was hearing that like you can't you can't be a good person or you're not well okay not not that you can't be a good person the thing was you don't go to heaven unless you're a good person mm-hmm. and also you don't go to heaven unless you're a christian
2: mm-hmm.
1: therefore you must be a christian to be a good person that was kind of the message i was getting my whole life growing up and yet that is the
2: message yeah yeah <laughs> that's the crux of so, it so so being a good person is not enough
1: right in a sense. I guess. I mean, that's that's an interesting way to think about it. But for me, I mean, my whole life, my parents were the best people I know. I don't know two better people than my parents. I think a lot of people might say that, but you don't know my parents. <laughs> they really are the best people you'll ever meet. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm hearing that message on one end, but then I know two very, very good people who are decidedly not Christian, you know, that is not going to compute, And that, that, therefore, like, that was the conflict I was always experiencing growing up. Um, Another interesting thing was my parents, like, you know, like, I I understand where they're coming from in that they were immigrants that came to this country when they were in their 20s. They, They have a very... Typical immigrant story almost where they had nothing. My father was extreme. He slept on top of billboards in mm. Mumbai growing up. You know, he had nothing. He, That's and- kind of dope though. I honestly. know. <laughs> yeah. Well, when we, when we go back to India, he loves showing us the billboards he slept on top of. But um, he came from nothing like on a borrowed plane ticket to come to America. And he is, you know, my husband and I had this like crazy dream wedding in a palace where Kyle came in on an elephant, all that. My dad did that. Um, after coming from nothing. So it's like a very typical, I mean, and it's so Success interesting. Story, yeah, right? it's yeah. interesting to say that that is the typical immigrant story, but I do see that as the typical immigrant story because almost every immigrant I know has a story like that. Mm-hmm. It's like a really cool story, but it's not super unique. Um, so coming from that, my parents had a lot of, um, I don't want to say negativity because they're not negative people. But um, reservations Reservations about white people in general and Americans, mm-hmm. um, just because um, the values are so different. I mean, you cannot, India is on the opposite end of the globe, and it's also as opposite culturally as you can get. We're a collectivist society while America is individualistic. Mm-hmm. You know, we're polytheistic while America is very, very monotheistic. And those are just like very surface level differences. Cricket
2: and football, that's a big distinction yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> so. Is that what we're going to go with? <laughs> I don't even know what you mean by football. Do you mean like American soccer or American football?
1: <laughs> no, no. no yeah. <laughs> You're Colombian. I assumed yeah. you meant the other football. What's football? Oh, football. <laughs> I, Kyle and I had this conversation the other night. So um, I had all these messages growing up about how like, you know, um, one big thing my parents didn't feel comfortable with about American culture is that they, uh, they, they always said like, you're lucky you're not born in an American family. If you were the second you turned 18, your ass would be on the street. Like, you know, like like a very one of the stereotype ideas they have about American parents is that they're like cold hearted and kick their kids out yeah, as tough soon as love. The, yeah. yeah. Like so that I, I was getting a lot that's, of Yeah, yeah, it's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, stereotypes come from somewhere. Um so that was the kind of feelings that they had about American people and so that was what I was hearing but then my grandmother would come from India and my grandmother I lied earlier when I said my parents are the best people I know my grandmother is the best person I know like my mom is a lesser version of my grandma and I'm a lesser version of my mom like grandmother is a saint. But she would come from India to America every other year. She didn't speak any English. She wore her little saris everywhere. She, like, to this day has never worn pants. She does not wear American clothes. And all she would do, and this also is because she's as good of a person as she is, but she would see all the beauty in American culture and the beauty in American people. She was like, she always commented on, like, if you get stuck on the side of the road because of car trouble... A million people will be willing to help you. There's always a lot of openness as far as like neighborly love, and that's not the case in Asian countries a lot of the time. People are mm-hmm. a little more jealous of their, like, family unit and how they're willing to help others. So my grandmother would come to this country and point out all the amazing things about American culture. So I'm really grateful that she did that too because it made me realize how much your experience and background and perspective, like, colors, how you see people in general. So
0: um, i I. And this is not meant to come off as like accusatory in any way, mm-hmm. but how does your father story as an immigrant and what you mentioned that a lot of immigrants, you know, have similar types of stories square with this idea of white privilege? Where does that fit into the schema? I mean, mm-hmm. how, how do you how do you conceptualize it? Did they just overcome all the odds or is there something built into the fabric of American society that that allows people who work hard to rise up?
1: Yeah, i um, that's a really interesting question. The immigrant experience, I think, is the opposite of white privilege, almost, in that, yes, I grew up in a somewhat privileged environment as far as socioeconomic status is concerned, but that was because my father literally came from nothing. So he didn't inherit land, he didn't get an education here, he didn't, have anything he didn't have a car he didn't have anything and because of sheer determination and will he um step by step by step so he when he first came here he boarded with an american family and he worked three jobs he delivered newspapers In Rogers Park in January, which for a little Indian boy coming from um, India, like a tropical nation, to Chicago winters delivering newspapers, that in and of itself was an incredibly difficult experience. I would say so. Then he would go home and he would sleep, not really, just rest or eat whatever he could, and then he would go to a nursing home And work as a CNA for an eight-hour shift. So he just came off of like four or five hours of delivering newspapers. Then he worked as a CNA, and CNA is a very thankless job. It's like the one of the most important jobs in a nursing home. What's a CNA? It's a certified nurse's assistant. So what CNA's are doing a lot of the dirty work that no one else wants to do, changing
2: you know diapers. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely, the tough job. Um, So dad was a CNA, and then he would come home for a few more hours. And he would work at the Solo Cup factory overnight. And he did that every single day for three years. Mm-hmm. And I don't know a single white person that would do that, quite frankly. I, I, I mean, I... I'm
0: sure they're out there, but yeah. So know? so I guess the answer is that what your father had to work extra hard for would naturally accrue to someone. Maybe. A, yeah, I mean, know, I don't yeah. want
1: to speak generally, right. but I know that immigrants who now are like... I have a lot of, again, I hate to perpetuate stereotypes, but most of my family is doctors, and they're all, like, in the upper echelon, you know, they're cardiothoracic surgeons, neurologists, um, educated at all the best universities in America, but what it took for them to get there is unspeakable, and the, or, un, like, most people would never believe that someone in that position did all of that. My uncle, who was ultimately the vice president of a pharmaceutical company before he retired, Mm -hmm. he, when he was in India, did not have electricity in his home. So he would walk blocks to the one and only street lamp in the town and studied his ass off under that street lamp to become a chemical engineer to come to United States. So I that's feel like... That's pretty
0: remarkable. Yeah. yeah that, that's that's there, incredible.
1: There are these things that the... And I could never do it. I'm I'm not an immigrant though. That, I'm like, <laughs> that's the thing I would never do. Like any one of those jobs that my dad had for three years in a row, mm-hmm. I would never do that. But that's my privilege as an American. I'm, I'm serious about it. Like I feel like it's a very immigrant thing to do. I mean, and you hear it all the time in our society. Like you know, they're doing jobs that no one else wants to do or is yeah. willing to do. So, I, another funny story, real quick, about my dad's experience. Like, I think part of the reason he had three jobs, um, one thing he always said to us was another re- reason that white people are crazy <laughs> was because um, I'm just laughing because this is so ridiculous. I can't believe I'm about to say this out loud. <laughs> he said that they're always naked. He's like, anytime I came home, they were naked like i he would he tells i know i don't know <laughs> if this is true or not like i've asked him many times over the last 25 years as long as i can remember him saying the yeah. story and he insists that it's true like in india people are very conservative clothing wise yeah. and yeah. i think he was really traumatized by the fact that these people he was borning with were so open with their bodies um and so he always talked about like how he would the it's so funny when he tells a story like you would think maybe like Cleaning old people's shit or delivering newspapers in negative right. ten degree—that would, that would be the be worst the horror job. story. Yeah. But his horror story is always that he would come home and these people would be naked, and he would sit in the bathroom and just cry and miss home and, <laughs> because everyone was always so naked. And then he he spent all of his time working so he wouldn't have to be there. Well, to, to be honest,
2: we regularly record naked. Yeah, Just yeah, we yeah. put on clothes as oh, a courtesy. Nice. We, that we, was we, so, we, so sweet we of you guys. Um, that's so weird.
1: I know. I mean,
0: I'm from New. New England, so it's like the most puritanical part of the United yeah. States, and that is not my experience at all. Know.
1: I mean, I still, I'm I'm going to have to ask him again when I see him over spring break, are you sure that's, are you sure they weren't wearing like <laughs> flesh-colored bikinis or something? Or, or, like, I mean,
0: <laughs> even like just shorts would probably be a culture shock yeah. for your father or something like that. I don't, know, I
1: don't know, but that's like, he really insists on that being a part it of really, his story, yeah. these naked white people that he lived with. Well,
0: he was boarding with like people, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. maybe it was like some kind of hippie community, I didn't even know. I, I have no idea.
1: Somewhere <laughs> in Rogers Park, I think it was, or down mm-hmm. north. That's interesting.
2: I, I want to step back a little bit and talk about, a little bit more in depth about what you just said about mm-hmm. Privilege in general. Mm-hmm. And privilege to me is evident. There, are, there is privilege out there and people need to be aware that they have yeah. privilege. What I still, I guess, don't understand completely is why do we need to add these terms of white, male, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because I know a lot of white, well, I don't know personally, but I am sure there's a lot of white families who are struggling financially and they also have to work three shifts per day. And I'm also aware that at this moment, there are immigrants of color from many countries who are coming here to the United States who are very well off financially, Mm -hmm. and they don't have to go through the grueling steps that most immigrants have to go through. So how, why distinguish between these immigrants of color who are extremely wealthy and their white counterparts?
1: Right. I think that's a good and a valid question. White privilege is not like other privileges. Um, The most glaring example I can give to you is you can be an African prince. And I knew one of these, Mm -hmm. an African prince. And you will still be viewed by Americans as a black man. Um, but you can be a poor white guy and not fear for your life when you're driving in your car and getting pulled over by a police officer. Okay. That is, I think, the most fundamental form of white privilege right now. I, I, not fundamental, but like the biggest area of conversation in this country right now about white privilege is this fact that statistics show that men of color are Murdered far more frequently in this country, mm-hmm. and and it's not it's not just the actual act of being killed, but even the fear that comes with it. So almost in every single black family, that that's the talk. You know, it's mm-hmm. not the sex talk, but it's the talk about what to do when you get pulled over, or how society views you, or why your um, opportunities or lack of opportunities are going to be different than. Uh, a white counterpart. So that, I mean, that right there is the biggest form of white, like the reason I think it's important to talk about white privileges. I, I absolutely understand when a um, white family from a lower socioeconomic status feels really offended when we say, well, you have privilege mm-hmm. when they are struggling to feed their family just like a black family would be or families of color who are doing very well comparatively. I understand the frustration there, but it's not a material privilege. It's a very, like, inherent privilege. Um, I'm sure you have all heard about the study where they sent hundreds and hundreds of identical resumes, one with the name John and one with the name Juan Mm -hmm. or whatever it was. And the one that had the generic white-sounding name got 80% more callbacks than the one with the ethnic-sounding name. It's another form of white privilege. And, you know, John could very well have been an ethnic person or a black person or um, anybody, but um, it was just the very basic impression. So that's why I think it's important to talk about because um, material privileges exist. Like, I, I while I do have a lot of um, minority identities, I am able to say that I grew up in a very economically privileged household. And I always want to acknowledge that first because I never want to come off as someone who's like, oh, my life was so hard, woe is me because I'm a woman of color. I mean, there were definitely challenges, but I recognize how lucky I am to um, be born to parents who worked as hard as they did to give us everything that we had
0: yeah and this was something that came up during Kate and my interview. and I think it's almost better conceptually in order to explain this idea to people who may not it may not inherently just click with mm-hmm. is that it's more of a majority privilege because I, I I think that just by dint of people having this sort of like in-group association and majority of Americans are white at the moment, that is kind of where. The privilege stems from. It's not anything that's immutable from being white. It's not like if I went to a sub-Saharan Afri- African country, I would still get like these white privileges. But, but I think it's it's part of being the, the majority group, you know. And
1: I, I, I want to push back against that just a little bit. <laughs> that's why we're here. <laughs> I I think it does have something to do with being white, and I think that that's present in a lot of different ways. Colorism is really. Another issue, and that's in, I think, a lot of African um, communities, Asian communities, not only do you, is it a problem that you're that race, but it's a problem if you're dark and of that race. So like in India, fair skin is considered beautiful. There are bleaching creams available in Africa. Same thing. If you're fair, if you're light skinned, if you have the lighter hair, the lighter eyes, the lighter skin, you're just considered more beautiful. And... Um, like, I think my mom is so one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life, but she was told she was ugly her whole life because she's got dar- darker skin and mm-hmm. barely darker than what someone would consider a fair Indian person. So I think that, like, there is this concept that whiteness and lightness is better in that way because, I mean, okay, we're going into the weeds here, but. If you look at the beauty industry, what is the standard image you're given of a beautiful woman? Maybe it's not necessarily a white woman, but it's a woman with straight hair, with big eyes, big lips, those type of things. And um, I've done a lot of research on it in grad school. But if you look at where those concepts originated from, it's a lot to do with colonization and with people in colonized countries being told that what is natural to your country is not beautiful, what we're bringing to your country is beautiful. Oh, but we're also going to steal all your spices and silk and everything to make ourselves more beautiful. So,
0: so, so this has a cross-cultural presence. I mean, is, does this hold up, though, in, in countries that are untouched by colonialism?
1: How many countries do you know that are untouched by colonialism? There's
0: a lot of them in Africa, actually. In mm-hmm. Central Africa, there's. Mm-hmm. Anyway, moving on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, I guess uh, you know. Just to close this up, I I, I understand the argument. I think it's very important to introduce intersectionality and pe- make people aware. And again, I I reaffirm my statement that there are clear privileges out there, and people need to be aware of those. I'm just afraid. That by labeling uh, privileges, we're gonna start to judge people without even giving them the benefit of the doubt.
1: But we're doing that already,
2: right? So I think I think that uh, rather than just putting these labels, is just recognizing that there are privileges, rather than just because um, I, I I sense that if we move forward in this direction, there's a lot of things that are gonna be prepackaged into certain ethnicities, races, sexes, and they're almost going to be uncontested or it's going to be politically incorrect to contest them in the first place. Does it make sense what I'm trying to say? Yeah,
0: I mean, <clears throat> I, I I see that argument, but I I agree with the notion that white privilege exists. right? You know? Right. so I, I, I do I, too. And I'm not one of those people, and I know that, that uh, some people feel much more strongly about this, that I don't really call it whatever you want if we're talking about the same thing. I mean, okay. uh So it's just semantics. <clears throat> I mean, you can call it. anything anything. I mean, North Korea calls himself a democratic republic. <laughs> They're not. <laughs> you know, so, so, I mean, as long as we're talking about the same thing, that's really— Donald
1: Trump calls himself a conservative. I know. He's not. I know,
0: I know. <laughs> and I said this during the circle. I said, I do not support Trump. You will not find me in a position of—
1: Defending Trump. I'm gonna be really honest. Yes. I think that was the biggest factor in me being able to have this conversation with you today. I'm I'm not trying to be funny, but when you said you were conservative, I reacted strongly. But then when you said you were not a Trump supporter, it immediately brought me down like 10 (laughs) degrees. So like that That, is that is why I say it. Yeah. Keep doing that. I'm glad glad
2: we circled back to this because there's a question I wanted to ask you. So when
1: wait, can I address what you said before? Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Um So everyone has heard the cliche that the first step to recovery is admitting that there's a problem. Uh And I feel the same way about the concept of white privilege or putting labels on it. It's not to further isolate people. It's so that we can all identify that there is a problem. And if you're unwilling to put a label on it, then it almost feels like you're unwilling to acknowledge that the issue exists. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping one day in a more evolved and loving society those labels won't be necessary. But the reality is that is not the society that we live in. And I think a big part of why I feel like we got the where we are in America is because for so long culture was We never talk about religion or politics. You can talk about anything, but you can't talk about religion or politics. I know where I grew up in Kentucky, that was like, people really stuck to that. I don't know if in New England it was the same way or in Florida it was the same way.
0: Decent people didn't do that.
1: Right. Yeah, so I think a big part of why we're, we are where we are today is because people didn't want to have uncomfortable co- conversations. If you're not talking about religion or politics, are you assuming that everyone has the same religion and politics as you do? Or if they do have a different opinion or a belief system, are you um, so afraid to hear about it or so fearful of confrontation, and when society for decade after decade after decade is built upon this idea of never talking about religion or politics, never putting a label on anything, Mm -hmm. um, in other words, it leads to a lot of fear and confusion and isolation, almost the opposite of what you would think. Like, you would think putting a label on someone would isolate them, but I think the fact that we... For so long, tried to get away from those things that it led to even more fear. So uh, it's more of like a truth-will-out type situation, in my opinion. I think that if you label it, if you identify it, it's out there, we're going to talk about it, and then maybe one day society can get to the point where it's a non-factor. Okay, that
2: makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think that what we're kind of going through as a country right now, and part of it is because we have a despotic tin pot leader. But part of it also is just because we have made a lot of strides in this country. I think that we're really getting down to the minutiae of ways in which we are still discriminating against certain people in our country. I mean, back in the day, it was pretty easy. Like people got lynched. It wasn't hard to know what needed to be cleaned up. But now I think that what we're going through is we're having this conversation with one another and saying, like, here are things we still need to be worried about. You know, maybe it's not manifesting in the way of somebody wearing a swastika or a white KKK robe, but it's, there's still some sort of insidious but more latent version of racism or mm-hmm. something like that. And that's why I'm so open to conversations like this, is because if that's the case, then we all should chip in our two cents. But in terms of just labeling things, as long as we all know what we're talking about, I, I don't care. You know, it, it's I'm, I'm more results oriented, unless of exactly what we call certain things. But
1: I am okay with being labeled in a lot of ways too, because. To me, that feels like you're acknowledging that part of me. Like, I liked it when you called me a brown girl earlier um, because I know you would never say that unless you were following <laughs> yeah, my lead on that. kind of the door on that. Yeah, and I, I liked it because I am a brown girl, and if if we can say it together, that means I'm taking the power of you, like, making fun of me by using that away from you. It's kind of like a reclaiming your identity, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: that seems to be something that's very important to people. Mm-hmm. There have been plenty of words that were previous outside of the lexicon that have yeah, now been drawn Yeah, we don't have back. to say yeah, them but, here. Right. No, I wasn't going <laughs> <laughs> to. I
1: mean, I, we're, I, we're on the same wavelength. Right right, 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 right.
2: I mean, I agree with everything you guys just said. Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. my reservation was just coming from... I'm afraid of objective labels on su- on subjective experiences. That's that's just pretty much it. But mm, I, I think, mm. you know, alluding to what you just said, Jake, as long as we're talking about the same thing and there is clear unconscious racism still going on in this country. And mm-hmm. this is a conversation that needs to be had. I agree. If I may, I just wanted to when we circled back to your visceral reaction to Jake's comment about being an oh. open minded conservative. Um, it, it physically affected you, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of people, especially on the conservative spectrum in rural America, who have these types of reactions to immigrants mm-hmm. because of what they've been told their whole life. So you having gone through this experience, what is what do you think is the correct approach to getting these people to open up and change their views on immigrants?
1: Yeah. Personal interaction. I really don't know what else besides... If you you hear growing up, brown people are bad. Maybe not in those terms, but in every different innuendo, joke, you know, any different way you can, the message is brown people are bad. And if you don't automatically question that, then that's going to become an ingrained belief. I was given the privilege of having the opportunity to question, like anytime my parents said white people are crazy, well, I grew up with all white people. I went to school with all white people. All my best friends were white people. My favorite teachers were white people. So I had a lot of examples of why that wasn't true. So I was like, yeah, mom, I understand what you're saying, but I also know that that's not true because of all the people I love in my life. So unless there's a, a direct opposite reaction to what you're experiencing, that's going to become an ingrained belief. And I think a good example of that, ooh, I'm going to tell a kind of intense story about Let's my do it. previous life. Like I said, I was a forensic therapist. I worked in at Hardin County Detention Center. Um, it was a men's, I guess, jail. Prison isn't. It's a little more extreme.
2: What's the distinction between a jail and a prison?
1: Am I supposed to know that? (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I think jail
0: is temporary holding, and prison is when you've actually been tried and convicted. Okay.
1: Okay. Oh, great. Law student. So we, the the men that I was working with came from the prison to this jail for um, different types of programming, but they were still incarcerated individuals. Um, so the program that I worked in, I worked with class C and D felons. Um, so like I um, say it wasn't like the rapists and murderers, but more, you're like, you know, woman beaters and drug dealers. A different. I mean, that, that was just primarily my clientele. But, okay. but I mean, do,
0: just, do you really want to spend more time with one over the other? I mean.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, you have to work your way up to like the Class A felons when yeah, you're right, you're right, in our right, position. Right. So you, they start you with like. The petty drug criminals, mm-hmm. and then you get to work your way up to the really exciting stuff. Okay. Um, so the Ted I, Bundies of the world. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's that's the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. You can really sink your teeth into. Um, Ooh. Oh, <laughs> I didn't even do that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> we have um, fun here. <laughs> so, um, I did not forget what I was saying.
0: You work with the lower level offenders. C- into the
1: yeah. Oh, intense story. Right. Yeah. So, Thanks, um, Thank you. I'm glad someone's with it. Um, <laughs> so I worked with a group of about um, 40 inmates maybe. And I was teaching at this time during the six-month period, I was teaching substance abuse programming. So if they graduated from the six-month program, then they would get six months knocked off their sentence. Um, so, like, the judge would give them the option and then they could come to this program. And a lot of people really hated it. Uh, a lot of the guys would, like, come, do it for a week and violently hate it and do something to go back to Gen Pop because it was not easy. It was not an easy place to live. It was not an easy program.
2: So when you said they did something to get out of it, like, what were the type of things that they Oh, do? you know,
1: contraband and fighting and...
2: Mm. Just your usual. You know, just your usual
1: jailhouse behaviors. So I had a crash course once I started. I had to take a crash course in recognizing gang tattoos Mm. um, because I was naive and treated everyone the same. Silly me. And treated everyone, like, with kindness and warmth because that's how I try to operate in life. I feel like you... It's very true that you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. So like all the therapists that worked there were like very hard-nosed and very strict and they were like don't let yourself get manipulated. You're too nice to them, all kinds of stuff. And I'm like it is very possible to be nice to someone and still be aware of like mm-hmm. what is happening in the interaction. Yeah, yeah. So I was really friendly with this one guy. Like, we talked about books. We talked about, like, his kids, what he wanted to do when he got out. Um, And one of my coworkers one day was like, do you know what that tattoo on his arm means? And I was like, no, I have no idea. And he said, look it up when you get home tonight. So I went down this dark Internet hole of gang tattoos. And what I was looking at, I I mean, it felt like a slap in the face. It was like a hardcore white supremacist tattoo. Yeah. And I, that's when I was like, oh my God. I I mean, I think I really didn't realize where I was or what I was dealing with until that moment. So then I decided that I was going to try to get to know this guy better. And so instead of, him just doing like the normal classes that I taught or the groups that I ran. I um, scheduled him to come in for like a one-on-one therapy session, and everyone was like, "You're crazy for doing that." And I guess I am a glutton for punishment, but I I was like, this guy that I've gotten to know at a pretty friendly level, he has a very uh, intense hate tattoo showing for me to see every single day. So we worked together. That first session was really rough. He was like almost silent. It was one of the worst, worst sessions of my life. He was almost silent for 30 minutes. And then at the end, he was like saying really negative things about therapy and like, that he doesn't think that I'm going to be good at my job because all I can do is make jokes in front of a classroom. But when it comes to one-on-one conversation, I'm terrible, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it was, it shook me up a little bit. And then I talked to my supervisor about it. And I went, I did the same thing next week too. I scheduled a session with him again. And I was like, okay, this time I'm going to try a different tact. I mean, you have to try, just like with anything, you have to try a few different ways. Like Sometimes you're just silent and a patient will open up to you. And sometimes you have to share a little bit about yourself and then they'll open up. So with him, I decided to be purely confrontational, which I try to avoid, but I went for it. I was like, do you think I know what your tattoo means on your arm. And he was shocked. He was like, I didn't think you knew. And I was like, well, I was going to be on. I'm going to be honest. I didn't know. And then I looked it up and now I do. And he was like almost in tears. And I was like, we can talk about it or we can't talk about it. And he said, I don't want to talk about it. And he left. And so I like mulled that over for a few weeks and then he came to my office on his own one day and he didn't talk about the tattoo but he talked about his family growing up and his grandparents and he was just telling me all these like really lovely stories about his life and I was okay with that. I was like, okay, I mean, good. I'm glad you had um, happy memories from your childhood. He left. He came back the next week and that week was when he started telling me like, uglier things about his childhood and I I now when I step back and like see how the whole six month period unfolded I understand what he was doing but at the time I was just so confused and just waiting to see what would happen each time we got to the point where we did talk about his tattoo and why almost why he became a white supremacist and how he was feeling about it now I'm not going to get emotional Uh, because the last day I was at the jail, right before I left, he wrote me a letter that I still have, that I will always have for the rest of my life, saying that he had never gotten to know a person of color ever. The only experience that he had known people of color in was in prison and jail because he'd been in his whole life. And that is not a great way to get to know anybody or form judgments about a whole group of people in general. Um, and he said that he was like he couldn't afford to get his tattoos removed, but if he could get his cousin to cover it up in the shack down the street, then he would do that. Um, he was gonna try covering it up with a sweatband. Like he was in of his own volition giving me all these different ways he didn't want his tattoo to show anymore. And I can only hope that means that he didn't hold to those beliefs anymore because he didn't he didn't want to wear it as a label anymore. And as a result, like, you know, the ripple effect, we talk about that a lot as therapists. I'm really hoping that he was able to talk to some of the people in his group about that. And mm-hmm. maybe, I don't know, maybe it'll make a big difference long term down the road. But that was a, like a very... Formative experience for me as a therapist and as a person. I mean, if I'm being honest,
0: yeah, that's a pretty heavy story. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know, I know, that's that's a that's insane. Though, I mean, uh, so how have experiences like that and in, in your practice of therapy shaped the way that you view humans? I mean, um, do you? I mean, I'm sure that it's difficult to view people as a monolith or as this sort of unchanging thing that we kind of fall into this trap of doing like you know somebody for a point in time but you don't think like oh that person was a baby Mm -hmm. you know and people almost have nothing to do with who they end up being in a lot of ways I mean how how does that change the way you think
1: that is actually how I think about it now that this person was a baby and that I mean maybe not like baby specifically but like this person came from somewhere that made them who they are And I think as a result, I'm far more optimistic. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. Like, people say you were a therapist. You worked in prisons and psych hospitals. You're in law school. Like, you should really hate people. You should be really cynical. But I am the opposite. The more I got to know people, the more positively and optimistic I felt about the human race in general. Uh And that happens a lot now. Like, again, another not funny example is like this whole debate of will Donald Trump get elected again? Like forgetting about all the investigations, whatever could happen there. If things stood where they are today, would he get elected again? And my optimistic view is no. People have grown enough in the last four years that that would not be possible. Whereas most people think I'm naive for believing so. And maybe I am. I mean, I very naively was convinced i knew how 2016 was gonna turn out sure and how a lot of the midterm elections were gonna turn out they didn't turn out that way um so but i've never stopped being optimistic about people
2: Mm -hmm. well i guess just now that we're on the topic like how because you were so conceived that you know hillary was gonna win Mm -hmm. how did trump's victory affect you personally and did that change your your view of you know a vast majority of the people? Do you think most people voted out of fear, out of misinformation, mis you know?
1: I was in a really dark place after the election. I mean, I think the lowest low. I think um, I really believe, as a therapist, like coming from a clinical perspective, every single human being, every single adult human being, has experienced depression at some point in their mm-hmm. lives. Um, If you look at, like, what the clinical definition of depression is and how it plays out, I really believe at some level every single person who is alive has experienced depression because it's really hard to be alive in this world. Right. And at some point it hits us all and we've all experienced depression. And a lot of time that depression goes unacknowledged and for very few people does it get so bad that they actually seek help for it. And I knew that about myself throughout grad school but when the 2016 election happened the 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 night of it was surreal like i felt physically worn down to like my bare bones and then over the course of the next I would say month or two, four or five weeks, I became a really bitter person. And I know you guys don't know me very well, but I, I, I'm not a bitter person. I'm like...
0: I picked up on that. Yeah, generally like an
1: optimistic, cheerful, happy, hopeful kind of person. You switched honey for vinegar for five weeks. Yeah, I was pure vinegar. Oh, I, I was, I vinegar and salt, really salty. man. like really salty. I was... I felt so personally attacked by the United States of America. And the one thing that I said that, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with my previous assessment that America is far more racist and sexist than I ever believed. I never believed that that was the condition of our country. And when that happened like old Facebook statuses. Ugh, I don't like thinking about them, <laughs> but I did. I do remember like posting on Facebook um, that night that I feel personally attacked by America right now. And over the next five weeks, I got really bitter about it. I was having a lot of trouble with my husband also. I mean, I love him more than anything. And I was bitter towards him just because he was a white guy. And he was like, I wore a knife with her shirt. I voted. I voted for Hillary. You can't be mad at me. And I'm like, but you're white. And you people did this to me. I mean, I was in a really dark place. And it got to the point where a lot of people in my life were like, this is not you. You've got, this is, this is bad. This is, this is the, what's happened in the country is bad, but it has broken you down completely. So like I had to go to therapy because of The state of the nation, essentially. So it was not because of the political office of president. I mean, obviously, everything is because of that. But that wasn't the reason I was so worn down. It was because I was like, everyone around me, did they vote for Trump? Did you vote for Trump? Did you like, I could not look at a white person without wondering if they had voted for Trump. 57% of College educated white women voted for Donald Trump. 57%. So like that was a demographic I was shocked that about. That was shocked
2: for me too. I mean Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: That was crazy. Yeah. And I remember election night and just the absolutely suspended reality that I was feeling, or just sheer disbelief. I was like, this is insanity. And I and I wondered for a while what it revealed about us as a country mm-hmm. like you did. I mean, ultimately. I don't know that people voted because they were racist and sexist, you know, but obviously our capacity to tolerate someone who is pretty openly racist and sexist uh, speaks volumes about us. But, you know, so you spend a lot of time in prisons. You are a psychologist, I think Donald Trump's a sociopath.
1: I'm not a psychologist. I'm a clinical therapist, and my clinical opinion is that he is a narcissist. He's on axis two. There, if you look at the DMV, there's DSM. Oh, sorry, (laughs) the DMV. The DSM.
2: Where is this going?
1: No, sorry. The DSM. They have it on his license. (laughs) I mean, it should be. Uh, Does he even drive? I don't.
0: Probably not. Uh, I don't know. Does he even walk?
1: <laughs> I don't think he can think about that many things at the same time to qualify for a license. <laughs> He's got a lot of things he doesn't qualify for, so he probably We're does
0: so violating the Goldwater rule right now, but this is fine.
1: <laughs> um, if you look in the DSM at the uh, criteria for pathological narcissism, he meets nine-for-nine nine criteria. I mean, there's no question. Um, sociopathy... I would say he has antisocial personality tendencies. Not, Mm -hmm. I would never go so far as to say he has a disorder without having a lot of conversations with him, which I hope to never have. So we'll (laughs) never know. But just just from what I can see, like there is demonstrable evidence that he has met every criteria for narcissism at the very least.
0: Right. Right. I I don't know. I feel like. A lot of these personality disorders sort of cluster together, like they have like the whole dark triad type thing. And he's definitely mm-hmm. Machiavellian too, like oh, you could sure. with his yeah. admiration of just total strongman dictators. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I don't know, uh, he's an interesting guy. Nico, I... do you have any? I mean, we're almost at two hours, by the way. Just so you... <laughs> I could do this forever. <laughs> this is easy for me. No, I know, but
2: your so, husband okay, is. <laughs> So what what uh, made you want to go into law, and what would you like to do after you graduate?
1: I have been asked that question so many times, you'd think I would have a good answer for it. I What made me come to law is that where I was working before, it was at a really micro level. I was working in the prison or in the psych hospital, and I knew that the people I was working with were being impacted positively, or I hope they were. And I I mean, I got feedback in that regard a lot of the time. Um, I know that a few of the people that I worked with long term stopped doing heroin for the three or four years that I knew them and I hope that they still aren't doing heroin. So I know I was having an impact at a micro level. But what was so frustrating to me was all the judges and lawyers and workers that I was dealing with in the criminal justice system had little to no knowledge of psychology, trauma, the effect, long-term effects of trauma, um, of any of that. And it really, it amazes me because that is a big part of understanding a person is understanding their trauma and understanding how that contributes to what their actions were. So we're, we're punishing people and that's necessary. I'm not disagreeing with that. But the punishment is arbitrary compared to what their experiences were. Mm -hmm. And so I I got to the point where I was like, I cannot do this my whole life, work at a micro level. I felt like I was toiling. Um, So the reason I came to law school was because I realized uh, I had a desire to affect change at a much more macro level. a much more society level, a systemic level, and I think that there are lots of people out there that can do it. I'm nothing special, but I have a very strong passion for it. And I was like, while I have the energy, while my husband is willing to support me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for it. My whole family supported me, and and I think it's because my family also saw the toll that day to day therapy was taking on me emotionally and. My frustration with my inability to help society at large. And again, that's not really fair for me to say because I know by helping the individuals, I'm helping the system. But, and I don't know if when I get out of law school if I'm going to be able to do anything at the systemic Mm -hmm. level but I had to try I live a very value driven life and my main values are love I try to do everything I do with love whether it's like meeting someone for the first time building a friendship my relationships the way I eat the way I travel everything with love and passion and with this really intense need to discover (coughs) justice or get justice in whatever way so I think if you combine my values of love, passion, and justice. I think law school was a natural transition for me. And the much harder question is what I want to do with it. I have no idea. I have no idea. That's I, valid. It changes every day, every class that I take. Something new piques my interest. Every conversation I have, like Loyola has the most brilliant professors, so every conversation I have makes me want to like follow them and be their minion. <laughs> like I am just so passionate about. So many different aspects of the law that I have no clue what I'm going to do with it. If you guys have any advice, <laughs> I will take it because I have, I'm have i so confused.
2: Well, based on your interest, the only advice I have short term is that you should look into taking uh, Professor Paradise uh, Life Science and the Law mm-hmm.
1: course. She was my property law professor. Yeah, she
2: was our property law professor. Mm-hmm. She's a great professor. And th- that class is interesting because it just touches on... The cutting, you know, the intersectionality between science and the law. Yeah. And part of the grade is you write a paper about an, any topic oh. you desire. And I think you have a lot of interesting things to, you know, explore and say. Yeah, so.
1: cool. Thank you. I'll definitely yeah. look into that. Yeah.
0: My advice short term would just be joining the staff of Dialogue to know. <laughs> <laughs> I have submitted my application. Radhika, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, for having thank me. Thank you so much for being here. Having a lot of fun. But
0: I did too. And for Dialog Nova, I'm Jake Rome. I'm Nico Spina. and we'll be back next week.